I'm just putting this on airplane mode, just in case. Um, I'm, I'm told there's sometimes there's some feedback, and I already have my phone in that same place. Well, I want to bring you one more encouraging message um, that, that I was so blessed with to have heard while I was in La República Dominicana. And it's a message, uh, the inspiration comes uh, from Jeff Perswell, who's uh, one of the pastors of the Sovereign Grace Church, now located in Louisville, with C.J. Mahaney and Bob Coughlin. I actually became friends with Bob Coughlin and Jeff Perswell. I'm so impressed uh, with their humility and a love for the Lord and their giftedness uh, from the Lord, which I don't think they're entirely conscious of. But our theme tonight is, is, is God's presence with us. And here's a quote from Jeff Perswell. It's a real simple one, but, 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 but I, I intend to prove it tonight with the Lord helping us. He says that God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people who he has made his own. That's an awesome thing. God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people who he has made his own. Let's pray just for a moment. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us uh, to grasp this wonderful truth that is taught in your word uh, from beginning to end, we can scarcely take it in that from all eternity, you wanted to have a people and you're going to get a people for yourself and you're going to dwell with them and allow them to dwell with you forever. May this uh, grip our hearts. May this... um, change the way we think and pray and worship together, the way we meet together. Help us. Help us to find you, to find our God who is dwelling with us even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, from this, this um, book that I've been reading... There's a, it's called Embracing Obscurity, and there is no author. It's anonymous, and we don't want to waste our time guessing who it is. Let's just get what is said in the book. I accidentally uh, got rid of the quote that I, that, that I wanted to give you. Um, he invented, or she invented, whoever... If I can find it. Well, you're supposed to be praying that I'll find it. That's, that's what I always do for other people, believe it or not. Um, I know exactly where it is at the bottom of a page. Let me see. Ah, here it is. Thank you for praying, if you did. Uh, the word is ludicrathetic. Who knows what ludicrathetic means? Uh, 
nobody knows what it means <laughs> because it's not a word. It's a, it's a, it's a new word uh, that he made up. And what it means, it's the combination of ludicrous and apathetic. And what it means, it describes a state in which the divinely ridiculous has become commonplace and is no longer of special interest or compelling. That's what happens to us sometimes. Uh, it's, God has done ludicrous things, unbelievable things, and yet they become commonplace to us and they don't affect us. We don't feel anything about it. We don't say, wow, anymore. And may God forbid that, because that is not, um, that is not what we want. That's, 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 that's not what we're looking for. That's not what we want to be. We want to be blown away as often as possible by what God has done. And um, I, I find that as passionate as you may think I am, I find some of that same thing in myself, that, 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 that I'm not always as excited or blown away by what I hear. But, but not that that's the goal tonight, but, but I, I want you to appreciate, I want us all to be encouraged by appreciating what Jeff Perswell said. He said that God's eternal purpose is to dwell among a people who he has made his own. And I want to prove that to you tonight through just five scenes, five pictures um, that are familiar to you. You can look at these passages if you want. You don't have to. You can just sit back and listen. But if you want to, feel free to turn to them. Scene number one of the five scenes that I think will prove this beyond any shadow of a doubt is in the Garden of Eden. And that's where the foundation was laid at the very beginning. In chapter one, you have the panoramic view of what creation was all about. In chapter two, you have the zoomed in image of, of the creation of man and woman and their placement in the garden. And so um, this, this God who is transcendent, who is supreme, who is exceedingly great, is, is also imminent. He's a God who is near. He is personal. He is close. He is both those things at the same time. So you read in chapter 2 and, and verses 8 through 14, a very familiar passage that, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man, he put man there, whom he, whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord made to, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight for, for good and, and for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it, it, it divided and became four rivers. And we know that these four rivers uh, flowed in, in, in four different directions. They reached uh, the four points of the compass. 
He goes on to say, and the gold of that land is good. And, and there is something called the delium and onyx stone are there. And so um, when you look at the garden then, when you think of Eden, you must think of a place of luxury. You must think of a royal park. Uh, Everything is there in abundance. There are riches there. There is all the food that they would ever need, all these different kinds of trees. Um, There was no such thing as vitamins or supplements. Uh, uh, There were rich foods. Every tree that was pleasant and was also good for food. And there's fellowship there. God is speaking uh, directly to them. God had fellowship with Adam and Eve before they fell. And there is relational harmony between Adam and Eve and God himself. And in this sanctuary, in this meeting place, you could even call it a temple, even though it isn't called that, but you can certainly call it a meeting place, a sanctuary, a defined place, a protected place of, of, of safety and provision and above all fellowship with God. Because you know from chapter 3, after they sinned, you know what happened. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I can't imagine what that sound was like. But they heard him. They knew his presence in the garden. He was with them in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The Lord was present in this sanctuary, in this garden, in this Eden, in in this divine place. And when you think of the east... That's where the garden was. You must think of the, the, the way the Hebrews thought of it as a place of life and hope. All of the temples face the east. In chapter 3 and, and verse 24, he, we read that he drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. There's a cherubim, uh, uh, some kind of special class of angels that, that, that blocked the gate to where God was. That's where God was meeting with them. That's where God walked. That's where God's special presence was. And those rivers, uh, uh, were originally designed, uh, to, to, uh, flow out. And it, and it could very well be, uh, uh, that there was a mountain in Eden. That's normally w- where rivers come from. That's what would make a river flow in in four different directions. It's not in the text, but it's it's, it's at least possible that there was a mountain there. And 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 we know that mountains um, had an important significance. Uh, for meeting with God in in Exodus three one, you remember the burning bush. Uh, it says there, 
Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So you have the two things going. you've, You've got a sanctuary, a safe place for Adam and Eve, the possibility at least or the probability of a mountain. We see in Exodus 3.12 that God says, I, but I will be with you and this will be a sign. This should be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God in this mountain. That was a meeting place. We know that Jesus was transfigured on a mountain and that he went to pray there and that he taught there and he met with his disciples on a mountain. That's not what we want to talk about just now. But we can, we can at least say this. In this very first picture, in God's original plan, he planned for unhindered fellowship in a defined place with mankind. That's what he planned for. And it was an unspoiled environment, that, and, it, it, and it was to be uninterrupted. God was present with them. He walked in the garden. He talked directly to them. And that is what we were created for. Well, when you come to scene two, then, uh, another picture of this, this comes after um, the devastating and disastrous destruction of the fellowship with God. At Mount Sinai, God begins again. God begins by getting a people for himself out of Egypt. They were there for 400 years. And God brings them out, and, and, and he forges this people that he brings out of the iron furnace. And, and, and God pursues them. He, he's going to prosecute his plan again to dwell among a people. And, and he does all this through those tremendous miracles that you know all about, but you know he was with them. He was in the pillar of fire by night, and he was in the pillar of cloud by day. He parted the Red Sea for them. And now, at Mount Sinai, he's got a people that he's brought out of Egypt, and he's going to meet with them again on the mountain. But he's going to meet with them through representation. He's through Moses. And, and he comes down on the mountain and... And he is there. He, he is present there. Exodus 19, uh, verses 16 through 20 say, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought out the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of, of, of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. He was coming down. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. 
the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So they were to become, from this point forward, a people that was to represent God on earth. They were to be holy and separate and marked out as different. That's what the ceremonial law was all about, to make them identifiably different and, 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 and to make them relate to one another. And so this unparalleled self-revelation of God came in, in the giving of the law like no other God has ever been imagined to have done. And he gives them promises in, 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 Exodus, in, in Exodus 23. He says he's going to have a place for them. Verse 20 says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you in the place that I have prepared. He wants this people. He wants to dwell with them. He wants to be with them. Be careful to him. To, Pay, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. And we can suppose, as, as often is supposed, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This, this is the one he is sending. This is the angel of the Lord. But if you carefully o obey his voice and do all that I say... Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. He'll be that close with them. He'll take up their cause. He, he, he will fight for them. In chapters 25 through 31, they're, they're, it's all about making arrangements for a meeting place, the tent of meeting, a tabernacle. Later, it would be the temple. And all these contributions of, of, of really cool stuff, all these animal skins, dyed different colors and things, all this stuff comes in. And, and all the special garments for the priests, the table, the bread, the lampstand, the incense, the altars, the bowls, the basins for oil, and the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat. These were the key features. And what does God say? In, in, in Exodus 25, 22, he says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim who are on, who are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God was coming down again. God was meeting with them. God, God, God wanted a place for himself where he could meet with them. In Exodus 36, God says, and, and, and you shall put in front of, of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. He wants to be with his people. God, again, was both near and also transcendent. Not everybody could go in to the Holy of Holies only by representation through the priests. 
Only the high priest could go in on a very limited basis once a year. But Exodus 33 reveals their true identity and distinction. Even after the horrible calf incident, when when they made that golden calf and God was so angry with them, and so was Moses... Here's what God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not be among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Moses fires back in verse 12. See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, And God said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. That's Moses quoting God. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. See, what Moses wanted was God's presence with them. He wanted that distinction. He wanted what God had originally promised. And God wanted to do that. And he's testing Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. It's as if God gives in. He says, I want you to be distinct. That is what I promised. I'm extremely angry. I could send a substitute. You would still get the land. But Moses says, what are we if we don't have you? What are are we if we don't have your presence with us? We are not your people. That's our identifying mark. So... In a sense, Moses wins, and so does God, because that's what God uh, wanted to do all along. But God did not live in the garden. He only appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob later. He did not live on Mount Sinai. He did not take up residence there. He was there. But now he says, build me a tent. Build me a place. Give me a tabernacle. 
a meeting place, a place where my holiness and my glory can be revealed. And that tent that they spent so much time describing was located in dead center in the middle of the 12 tribes. There were three tribes on each side, and he was dwelling with them. This was something that was new. He settles in with them. Jeff Perswell says that, that, that now he's in the neighborhood. Now he's on your street. That's how much God wanted to, 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 to be with them. So although they were separated, in a sense, uh, because everything was mediated through the priesthood, yet they were connected with God and 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 in this sense he was living in 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 their presence he was imminent and he was also transcended and you know what happened sadly throughout their history the whole thing became unraveled the the whole thing was undone and and even though he repeatedly sent prophets to them you know that the temple was decimated. You know that all the treasures were taken away to Babylon. You know all the terrible things that happened. You know that pagan nations took over the, the promised land. And, and, and they, they missed their calling. They rejected their calling. They wanted to be like the other nations. God had called them to holiness and to obedience and to the enjoyment of, of his presence and they rejected him. And, and, and so it would seem to me, maybe it seems like this to you, God, why don't you just give up? You've done all of this. You tried the garden. You tried Sinai. You tried the tabernacle. You worked all of these miracles. You sent the prophets. Why don't you just quit? You're not going to get a people for yourself. Well, that's, that is not, that's not the heart of God. His people were feeling this, this awful national event, which was a theological event. They had to ask themselves, are we really the people of God anymore? Why they were exiled, when they were far from their home, where they were living under the rule of other nations. Well, the last book of the Old Testament offers help and hope. Malachi 3.1 says, surprisingly, if you were able to receive it, if, if, if you were a Jew there, you would say, wow. If, if you were part of, of this remnant, you would have some hope. Malachi says, on behalf of God, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, the God that you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. He's actually going to come. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's a ludicrous a ludicrous event. That's, that's crazy. Yet, yet in scene number three, there is the coming of, of a person who will be the one to dwell with them as never before 
in the history of civilization. He will come personally in in the image and the exact representation of his nature in Jesus Christ. Stephen Charnock, the uh, Puritan, says, God, therefore, pitches upon Christ in his secret counsel and and stores up in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge to shoot his beams through him upon man. God is really going to come. He's going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Charnock says, the divine nature shines forth and sparkles in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1.14, and the word became flesh. Marvel at that. Say, wow, God has become flesh. And it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us, lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and peace. Jesus said, grace and truth. Jesus said in John John chapter 2 concerning himself, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple that is coming. They didn't understand him. They said it took 46 years to build the temple. He was talking about his own body. And his, and his disciples understood it after he was raised from the dead. Matthew one twenty three says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what are you going to call him? What's his name? They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mark Driscoll tweeted this. He said, Jesus could have sat in, in the temple and said, come to me, come to me. But he went out everywhere. To the people. That's our Savior. That's our Savior dwelling with us. That is God with us, seeking sinners, seeking and gathering a people for Himself. The ultimate revelation of the Father is seen in Jesus, and the ultimate revelation of the heart of God to have a people to dwell with is seen in the cross. The cross is, is, is the saddest and gladdest place that could ever be. It's the saddest place because our Savior was suffering there. It's the gladdest place because he was purchasing our redemption. God met there. God met us there. And we were there in Jesus Christ. And, 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 and we find all of our significance in him. And so when he was raised from the dead in Matthew 28, he was able to say, 
All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, fa- in the name of the Father and of the Son and in, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you. I am with you. Whenever you testify for Jesus Christ, whenever you want to share Jesus, he is with you. That's what he says. When you testify, have courage, have humility, but know that he is with you. And where is Jesus now? Where is he now? The book of Revelation tells us something of this. We read in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, that, that John turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of, of, of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And and from his mouth came a a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining at, at, at full strength. What is this a picture of? This is a picture of Jesus Christ walking among the seven golden lampstands. And you know what the lampstands are. You know what they are. They, they are literally the seven local churches that are mentioned in this chapter. Christ is in the midst of his local churches. He is there. He knows all about them. He knows how to encourage them. He knows how to correct them. He knows how to teach them. He knows how to in, encourage them. And that is, is what he is doing. That's where God is at Heritage Baptist Church. I don't want to anticipate too much, but I want to tell you, we've got to be looking for Jesus here. We've got to be looking for God here. We've got to stop coming to church and evaluating and criticizing and wondering if things are going to be to our preference. I tell you, people of God, the words to these songs are precious. Don't worry about the music. Don't worry about how people are dressed. Don't worry about how the pastor performs. Don't worry about anything else, but look for Jesus. Look for God here, because this is where he meets. He died for this. He died for the church. He purchased it with his own blood. That's what we've got to come to. We've got to come to this place because he has made every one of you who are Christians... You are all temples of the Holy Spirit. He has sent his spirit to you. That's what he says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 
Even the spirit of truth whom the, who the, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's what we have. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while, the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's what Jesus says. And when we come here, if we're looking for God, if we're looking for Jesus, we will see him in his people. We will see him in the hymns and songs that we sing. We have to intentionally do that. We've got to get away from evaluating things And measuring things and thinking of what we prefer. Prefer God. Go for God because he he is in he's in the local church. He dwells there. This is his meeting place. This is where he meets with you. It's where he meets with me. This is this is what we've got to do. First Corinthians six nineteen says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Hallelujah. Who you have from God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I've gone a little longer, but I want to give you just one last picture. I've gone 37 minutes. One last picture then. The last image is Revelation chapter 21. And there we see the new heaven and the new earth. And we don't see a temple. We see a city. We see a city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it's in, in that place where this loud voice comes. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Verse 3, he, and, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's the culmination of the whole thing. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Almighty, the Lamb, the Lord God. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, because the glory of God gives the light. So you go from the garden to Mount Sinai. You go to the patriarchs, you go to the prophets, you go to Jesus, you go to the Holy Spirit, you go to the New Jerusalem. You have a God who is uh, dwelling with us. And he dwells no more in any other place. Forget the building, okay? Forget the chairs. Uh, Forget uh, the order of worship. Forget the style. God meets with his gathered people. We are not a random group of people that are getting together to hear somebody speak. We are the people of God. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are his pleasure. We are his desire. We are ultimately going to live with him forever, and he's going to live with us. That's the God that that we come to worship. So when you get out of bed, he is with you. You can pray to him in the morning. When you go to work, you can pray by yourself. You can pray with somebody else. When you go to a community group, he's there. 
He's there. He meets with us there. We find him in prayer. We find him in each other. It's, it's wonderful to have a God who, who wants and does dwell with us. Let's take every advantage of that. Let's seek and find God wherever he is present. He is no more present in the local church, in the gathering of his people. He's no more present for a special blessing right here in the midst of his church. Seek him with all of your heart. Come to Heritage Baptist Church. Come to our church, dear family of God, looking for God. Looking for him in all that is done, doing it on purpose, trying to find him here. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your tremendous condescension and stooping down to uh, to be our Father. To uh, take us by the hand. Those of us, we don't know how to uh, go out and come in. Help us more and more to find you uh, uh, among us because you, you are here. You're with us. You're within us. You're in our homes. You're in other meetings. Help us to always be looking for you and not looking uh, to be entertained, not always looking to receive, but to give back to you to praise you and, and, and to honor you. Help us. Help us uh, 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 to, to grow in this area of our understanding and our apprehension of your presence with us. We love you. We love you, our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.